Old Testament sacrifice has nothing to do with sin. It's time to ditch that horrid theology called substitutionary atonement. It obscures real faith. The central focus of Christianity is not about the cross, but about inner transformation. Substitutionary atonement makes forgiveness of sin and entry into the afterlife the central part of our religion. But it's not. That belief messes everything up. Christianity is all about inner transformation and about the transformation of the world. Jesus did not die for our sins. No, 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 no. That's ghastly theology. I mean, sure, there are some sermons and books and hymns everywhere that talk about it. You've sung it before. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. I mean, like that hymn, there's a widespread belief that Jesus actually died in our place. Let me say this. This theology is an obstacle to Christianity and an obstacle to evangelism in the 21st century. It portrays God as one who demands blood for offenses against himself. That Christ dies the death we deserved and we're declared righteous. I'm almost embarrassed by this theology. It's well past its sell-by date. And in many ways, it's immoral. Well, on that note, welcome to this gathering again of Redeemer Church of Dubai. Again, my name is Dave and I really do serve as one of the elders here at the church. And just for the record, I don't believe a single thing I've just said about the cross and Christianity. Don't have to fire me yet. Those words are terribly and awfully and utterly and horrendously false. If you felt uncomfortable and even outraged at what I just said, friends, I am too. But those words that I just spoke in the introduction are a word for word quote of a pastor. A pastor who vehemently denies substitutionary atonement. Rod McBoyle, a longtime church member here at Redeemer, sent me a video of that preacher a couple of years ago, and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. This is a pastor, one who carries his Bible up to the pulpit every week. A pastor who's entrusted to shepherd the flock. A pastor who stands before the people of God and is supposed to teach the Word of God. And he says that substitutionary atonement, it was a decent belief back, back then, hundreds of years ago. But we as Christians, we're way past that now. We're on to better things, different things. Friends, no, we haven't moved past the cross. We don't move past the cross. We don't move past substitutionary atonement. We don't move on to something else, something better, something less gory, something less offensive. No, the cross of Christ and substitutionary atonement is central to our faith. In fact, substitution is what the day of atonement was all about. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. 
As you're turning there, I have to make a deal with you before moving on. By sitting in this room, you are agreeing not to take my earlier quote out of context and ascribe heresy to me. That includes you, Glenn Jones. Also, if you don't know why what I said earlier is heresy, let me give you one book recommendation. Uh, It's a book called It Is Well, a book by Mark Dever and Michael Lawrence. It's a book filled with sermons on substitutionary atonement. Some of my insights even today come from words written by them in that book. And if you're new to us this morning, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you've joined us. We're continuing our nine-week series through the book of Leviticus. This is week number seven. Week number seven in the Day of Atonement. We've seen that Leviticus is all about laws, all about sacrifices. These were given to the Israelites after the exodus out of Egypt to atone for their sins. The Day of Atonement was the most sensual day of sacrifice. Many scholars believe this chapter is the center of Leviticus and even the entire Pentateuch. And I have one main point this morning, one main overarching idea For which everything else will fall under. Here it is. God is holy. And we are sinners. But Christ is our atoning sacrifice. Repent and believe in him. God is holy and we are sinners. But. Christ is our atoning sacrifice. Repent and believe in him. We'll unpack that as we walk on through the text this morning. First of all, God is holy. That's one of the main themes of the book of Leviticus, isn't it? God is 100% perfect. He doesn't lack anything. He's not lonely. He doesn't sin. He has no imperfection. He's not like us. I mean, some of us think we're always right. You know who you are. No. Jesus really is always right. He's Pure in every way. Leviticus chapter 19, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because God is holy, there's a problem. Look at verses 1 and 2. Sinners can't casually and inappropriately just wander on in to God's presence. These instructions here in chapter 16 come right after Aaron's sons were killed for offering up strange fire to the Lord. It looks like it's on the same day even. We don't know exactly what they did, but it doesn't matter. It was contrary to God's command. That's exactly what sin is. It's doing anything contrary to God's commands and his nature. But it's not just Nadab and Abihu. All of us follow in their footsteps. We're all in this mess together. The priest's sin highlighted the challenge of sinful people living in close proximity to a holy God. Verse 2, God's presence is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. This was a box where the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were, were held. There was a cherubim carved on its golden lid called the mercy seat. And the cherubim were angelic-like figures, creatures. After Adam sinned, they guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden the place where God dwelt with man. And now the cherubim symbolically guard the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was kept in a two-room portable tent that we've talked a lot about so far, the tabernacle. 
Outside was a larger room where many of the sacrifices were made. But then there was an inner room. There was a, another room there in the very center, a smaller room. It was called the Holiest of Holies. Now, this, this place was extra special. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And no one could go into that room. With one exception, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. One time per year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And the Israelites depended on this day as a way to deal with their sins. God is holy. But we are sinners who deserve death and judgment. We've already seen that in chapter 10. Then chapters 11 through 15 are filled with all those clean and unclean laws. And after this chapter, we'll see nine more chapters. Chapters 17 through 25 will give us more rules and more commands to be holy. Hope you can see as we read through this book that we just can't do it. That we just can't abide by all of these laws and all of these rules 100% of the time. And because God is a holy God, he can't let us go without punishment. He would cease to be God if he didn't execute perfect justice. What hope do we have? Leviticus 16 tells us. Twice in verse 2 we see atonement 15 times in the chapter at one mint. It has the idea of covering. God provides a way we can be one with him and reconciled to him by covering our sin. This must be done for us. Otherwise, if you're not with God, you're dead. There's nothing in between. You can't be neutral. There's no middle ground. Either you're with God in fellowship with the creator of the world, or you're not, and you're dead in your sins. There's nothing in between. There's no neutral territory. There's no middle ground in between life and death. It's one or the other. Friends, whether you're 12 years old or 72 years old today, you have to deal with this. Are you aware that atonement must be made for you? You specifically. Think about yourself for a minute, not someone else here, not the person you brought this morning, not someone that you know is far from God. Do you see that you personally need atonement? Without intervention, an eternal death sentence weighs on each of us. It hangs over our heads. So we can't argue that we're not that bad, or at least we're not as bad as that guy over there. We can't say, well, we're young. We'll deal with this later on in life. We can't say we're old and we've already paid our dues to God by living a good life. God is holy and we are sinners. Children, teenagers, university students, young adults, people like me who are watching their beards and hair turn gray. All of us, from the the sweetest little five-year-old to the kindest grandmother and everything in between. There's not an age, there's not a season of life where we are immune to sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We stand guilty before our holy God and we Prove it every day, don't we? By our thoughts, by our deeds, by what we don't do, by our words. God is holy and we are sinners, but Christ 
is an atoning sacrifice. There's good news. The day of atonement points to this. It came six months after Passover, normally in October. Jews called Yom Kippur. It happened just a week and a half ago. This was a festive event. No parade, no exchanging of presents. It was a national day of mourning and repentance. Chapter 16 describes the day, but not chronologically. You can read through it again later. The first five verses describe the animal in priestly clothes. Verses 6 through 10 outline the ceremony. And then in typical Hebraic style, verses 11 through 28, go back and cover important moments. They zoom in on crucial details. That's what I want to do this morning. I just want to take some time and I want us to zoom in on 12 important details here from the text that point us to the truth that God is holy, we are sinners, but Christ is an atoning sacrifice. Repent and believe in him. So 12 things. The first thing we notice is the humble clothes that the priest would wear. That's number one. He puts on humble clothes. You know, the high priest normally, uh, on a daily basis, will wear this ornate robe. Lots of colors, lots of intricate details. So put on gold. Wear lots of jewelry. He'll look like a king. But not on this day. In verse 4, you see that he trades his priestly robe for a garment of simple linen. It was white. It was simple. It was the clothes of a slave. Why does he do this? Well, his dress must fit the occasion. When he speaks to the people on behalf of God, he wears his kingly dress. But when he comes to God on behalf of the people, he comes as a servant. He comes with nothing in his hands to bring. He comes in all white as a slave. Again, showing that he does not deserve to be in God's presence and he has nothing to contribute to the atonement that God would provide. And it all reminds us of another priest who humbled himself. One who would come later. One who would later strip down to the garments of a slave and would stoop down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. And then one who went to the cross, though being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Not only did Aaron have nothing to bring to atone for the sins of the people, he needed atonement himself. That's the second observation. Number two, Aaron had to make atonement for his own sin. In verse 21, the priest would confess Israel's sin before God. We see that. I've wondered how they came up with the list. Right, all the sins from the past year, how long would that take? Hours? And would the priest have his hands on the head of the goat that whole time? The sin was everywhere. They were even defiled, get this, they were even defiled as the people of God for their participation in the Day of Atonement. You see that in verses 23 through 28. But atonement wasn't just for the people, but for the priest himself. And it's fascinating that for all of the people of God, you bring a goat, but for the high priest himself, you'd actually bring a bull, even a more costly animal. And the high priest was the spiritual leader of Israel. 
But even he needed his sins atoned for. No one was immune to sin. This goes for all of us, for me, for you, for every single person who's ever walked on the face of this earth. We're in need of an atoning sacrifice. The fact that their sins were atoned for by a priest who himself needed atoning for gave this whole thing a real temporary feel to it. That's why these imperfect sacrifices never stopped. That's the third observation. Number three, these weren't one-time events. Verses 29 through 34 remind us that the Day of Atonement happened every single year. They never stopped. It was a provision to forgive you of your sins for that past year, but the next year always came, and then another year came, and then another year came, and then another year came. It reminded you that these sacrifices didn't finally grant forgiveness. Hebrews 10 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Deep down... They knew this. Deep down, they knew this couldn't be it. People of God would have felt it when they considered the animals. That's the fourth observation. Number four, it was a goat. What gets killed for the sins of the people? One measly goat. Now, don't get me wrong. I like goats. I'm not against goats. I've never met a goat. But sure, goats are great. Now that I've said that, it was just one little goat. I mean, what would you be thinking if you're there in the congregation? You're standing outside the tabernacle. The priest takes one goat and slays it as a sacrifice. And then he takes another goat and lays all of the sins of Israel on that other goat. And you're thinking, a couple of goats do all this? Dr. Gary Miller asked a question in our golf training center class on the Pentateuch. What do you do in a really bad year? Do you have to get a big bodybuilding goat, you know, a really strong, massive goat on steroids to carry all your sin? Now, would you be thinking if you're watching this as the people of God, you'd be saying, surely, surely this can't be it. This can't be enough. This can't do it. A goat, really? Well, fifth observation along those same lines. Number five, the sacrifices themselves appeared incomplete. They appeared incomplete. It's not a normal sacrifice. Normally, we've seen all these offerings and sacrifices. You'd take an animal and you'd kill it. But here in this sacrifice, you have both an animal that will die. You also have an animal that will live. The priest would take these two goats and he'd cast lots for them. This was a way God prescribed in the Old Testament at times for discovering his will. You would take these two lots, kind of like dice. You'd put them in an urn and you'd shake it up. You'd take one out, that would be the fate for one goat. You'd take the other lot out, that would be the fate for the second goat. One to die, one to be the scapegoat. I mean, first, it seems like, man, if I'm one of these goats, let me be the scapegoat. I mean, wow, it's down to this. One goat versus the other goat. You think, one of them, it'll be his lucky day. But it's actually a bad day for both of them. 
Neither of these two goats is the lucky goat. First of all, they're both goats. It's a bad day for both of them. Just think about the scapegoat. He's let out, but he's not just let out outside of the camp. He's driven out into the wilderness. Verse 22 actually says it's a remote area. Literally, that means to an area that was cut off. The people knew that it was the end of the road for the goat, and he'd most likely die alone. It's a bad day for both goats. And if you're an Israelite, you don't want that scapegoat to come back. All the sins of Israel were placed on him. You want that guy far, far away. Can you imagine if somehow that goat made its way back into the camp? And the thought must have haunted the guy who was in charge of getting the goat far away. I'm sure he wanted to get it far, far away. Jewish tradition has it that sometimes the man would actually lead the goat to the edge of a high cliff and push him over backwards. You know, do whatever he can. Get him out of there. Cut him off. But see, even the slight possibility that that goat could return is one more indication that this sacrifice isn't permanent. But it really did atone for your sin. That's the sixth observation. Number six, the blood sacrifice atoned for sin. Normally the high priest would sprinkle blood outside the curtain leading into the holy place. But here on this day, he would do it again seven times, but he would do it inside the holy of holies. Seven is the number of perfection. This blood actually covered the sin, all of it, for that year. It was all pointing, though, to the one who would perfectly and completely and finally cover their sin. And this one to come would be innocent. That's the seventh observation. Number seven, the sins were removed by an innocent one. It was an innocent one. The priest laid hands on the live goat, symbolizing the transfer of guilt from the priest and the people to the goat. The goat would then carry off their sins. In verses 8 and 10, and then later in the chapter, you see this word, Azazel. Maybe you were studying in your community groups this past week. You came across this word, didn't know what it meant. The meaning of the word is actually uncertain. A couple of things it could mean. Some think it's a place. The goat was taken. The goat took the sins to Azazel, maybe a remote or rocky place. Others say it's the name of a demon. The people's sins were taken to the demonic realm where they were destroyed. Either way, the important thing isn't what it was, but that the sins are taken by one who's not guilty and destroyed or done away with, cut off from the people. I don't know if you read comic strips, little cartoon story, but in an old comic strip, uh, there was a picture of two employees at a business. The first employee had worked on a project, and the project had greatly failed, lost the company, lots and lots of money because of his mistake. And he decided he was going to blame this other employee for his own mistake. And the second employee confronted him and said, hey, I didn't, I didn't do it, you did. And the first employee told him, I never said it was your fault, I just said I was going to blame you. See, he made an important distinction there. Fault and blame aren't necessarily the same thing. In common conversation, a scapegoat is someone who bears the blame, but not the fault. 
The blame, the penalty was placed on the innocent scapegoat. I mean, just imagine that goat would would die, would be driven out into the wilderness for you. They would slash that innocent goat's neck because of your sin. You could just imagine that picture would just burn on the minds of the Israelites. They wouldn't forget it because they would see that that goat got what they deserved. How could you forget it? It was a live visual illustration that someone had to die. Because of how you've offended God. People received mercy they didn't deserve. The goat received the death the people deserved. And it all again pointed to the greater sacrifice that would come when an innocent one would die. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous... For the unrighteous to bring you to God. An innocent one had to die to bring you to God. Another observation from the text is that this was no easy or safe ritual. Number eight, the ritual was dangerous. Imagine the scene. Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies for the first time and only time that year. Everything has to be done perfectly. It's so important that as the high priest, you would practice all of your steps. You'd practice what you would do, what you would say for days, maybe even weeks. Secluding yourself, just like an actor before a play would practice his lines and would practice his movements, would practice every step to make sure he got it right. The high priest would practice day after day to get ready for the big day. For the priest, the consequence of messing up wasn't just a fear of man, wasn't an audience laughing, wasn't being embarrassed in front of people. It was facing the wrath of God. We saw what happened to Nadab and Abihu. This was life and death. Look at verses 12 and 13. Look at some of what the high priest had to do. He shall take a censer full of coals there in verse 12, coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. And he needs to do all that. Look at this. So that he does not die. Aaron better get this right for his sake, for the people's sake. Before entering into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull, Aaron had to create a cloud of incense on the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And he did that to veil the glory of God so that he could enter into the presence. This was to prevent the high priest from gazing directly upon God because no one, no human could handle the sight. While Aaron did this, the people would be outside. They'd be outside the tabernacle. They'd be probably shaking, probably anxious, probably nervous, probably praying that God would sustain Aaron, that he'd do everything perfectly right, that their sins would be forgiven. They would anxiously wait for Aaron to come out. It was a dangerous ritual. A ninth observation, a ninth thing we see in the text, sin affects everything. Sin affects everything. Verses 16, 18, and 20 seem strange to us. Atonement 
was being made for the tabernacle, the altar, other holy items. I mean, that's strange. Atonement for things. I mean, the tabernacle wasn't sinning. Things can't sin. But these objects were defiled over the year by the people's sin. It's interesting. The presence of God in the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle reminds us of the presence of God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. In both cases, they were in the very presence of God. The veil partitioning off the Holy of Holies was woven with cherubim, just as cherubim guarded the entry to the garden. Priestly duty within the tabernacle is depicted with the same verbs used for Adam's duties in the garden. And just as the tabernacle is constructed with a most holy place within it, Eden is described as a mountain of God with established boundaries of holiness related to God's presence. The garden was corrupted by sin. Adam and Eve were banished and sent out into the wilderness. Now here, the tabernacle itself would be so corrupted that the priest had to make atonement for it. Sin affects everything. Ourselves, others, our environment. This is a picture that we don't live in an isolated existence. As if our private sins at 2 a.m. in the morning when we're all alone don't have an effect on others. Our wicked thoughts affect others. Our little white lies we think aren't hurting anyone really do hurt. Sin fractures relationships. Our sins have far-reaching consequences. And the Day of Atonement was given by God to help people start over with God and with one another. People were forgiven their sins on this day, even those they didn't know they committed. That's the tenth observation. The Day of Atonement covered sins you weren't even aware of. The Day of Atonement covered sins you had no idea you did. Now, last week after the service, I stepped down from the platform and a teenager came up and asked me a great question. He said, I know, Pastor, you talked about what happens if an insect lands on your hand. Then you'd go, oh, I'm unclean, and you'd go offer the proper sacrifices and rituals to become clean again. But what happens if an insect lands on the back of your head? And you don't know about it. What do you do then? I said, well, you, you don't know that you're unclean. You, can, you, can't, you can't become clean. You didn't know that it happened. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, the Day of Atonement. This sacrifice took care of all unknown sins and uncleanliness from the past year. We all commit sins we don't know of, right? Sins of omission. Things we do that we just don't know are sin. In Psalm 19, David prayed, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Knowing this led him to pray in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. We're so sinful we can't even discern all of our sins. This is why accountability and fellowship is so important. We need people in our lives who are willing to confront us in our sin. This is also one of the reasons we have church membership. Chris mentioned in the beginning of the service that we have another membership class in two weeks. We do this because there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. On our own, we can be deceived into actually thinking that we're okay. 
We're so deluded in our sin that we need a wall of protection around us to keep us from straying away. Members of Redeemer, take great comfort in the fact that there are 532 other members who are looking out for you, who are praying for you, who will chase after you if you continue to engage in unrepentant sin. Whether you're going to be in the UAE for nine months or nine years, either way, join us. Even just a few months is long enough for us to become deluded in our sin and to start looking like the world. Join us because the Day of Atonement reminds us that we're not only culpable for the sins we know about, but also those sins that we have no idea we've committed. Now, thankfully for the Christian, Jesus doesn't just take away the sins we know about, but all of our sin. Jesus was crucified outside the city in the wilderness, and when our sins were laid on him, there wasn't even the slightest chance of our sins coming back to haunt us again. Psalm 103 says, As the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sins from us. I mean, think about that. I mean, the east and the west never meet. There's far away as can be. If you keep going to the west, you just keep going towards that. They never meet. My friends, Jesus is greater than the scapegoat. He takes our sins finally and forever. Well, an 11th observation. Number 11, you see in the Day of Atonement, one person acted on behalf of the whole. One person, one person acted as a representative for the whole. The high priest offered the sacrifices. He bathes himself in the holy place. He dresses himself in the garments. He does it all by himself. One person acting for the good of the whole. And when he came out alive, the people celebrated God's work. All this points to the one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who would offer the ultimate atonement. God is holy. We are sinners. But... Christ is our atoning sacrifice. And here's the last part of our main point. Repent and believe in him. That's the twelfth and final observation. Number twelve, there was a response by the people. There was a response. They weren't passive. In verse 29, the people trusted God and stopped their work like they were commanded. It's a national day of mourning. They stopped everything. They obeyed God and participated. And then look at the last line in our passage, verse 34. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. The people did as they were commanded. Then Aaron, the high priest, did as he was commanded by God. God gives his word, and the people and the priests respond. They trusted God. See, friends, there's always a response to what God has done and to what God has commanded. God does his work, and you either believe it or you don't. Now, this is so important. Friend, do you believe that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins? Do you believe that? So you have to say, I need a sacrifice. I need one to die for my sins. I need a substitute. I need someone to take away my iniquity. And friend, as you read through the book of Leviticus, you've got to see that it's all about Jesus. You've got to see that all of these pages are about Jesus. They all point to him. The one perfect sacrifice. 
You have to raise your hand and say, I see it and I need it. You've got to respond. I received the most encouraging email this week from one of our members. She told me about a friend from a nearby country. They were studying various Old Testament passages together, tracing the redemption story all the way up to the Gospels. They were studying Leviticus chapter 16 one day, the Day of Atonement. And this member thought to herself, ah, it's just about sacrifices and about goats, about blood. What's it going to matter anyway? But they studied it, then they dug into it, Leviticus 16. And then all of a sudden, the, the church member asked her, what do you think this day was all about? And the lady said, it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. And then she said, if my people could only hear about these ancient rituals from thousands of years ago. They only can, can hear these things. What a difference it would make. My friends and family do sacrifices, but they don't know that all those sacrifices were an incomplete symbol, all pointing to Jesus' complete sacrifice. Our fellow church member was stunned, and her jaw was probably on the floor. And then her friend said, if my people could hear these things, they would gather in community. They're open, but they've been kept in darkness and only know lies. They only know lies. And then at the end of the time, the church member said to her friend, we've got to pray. Let's pray. And her friend cut her off and said, yes, let's pray for my people. See, friends, that woman got it. She, she, she got it. She read Leviticus 16 and she saw that it was all about Jesus. She saw that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. See, these pages were about the one great, final, ultimate, permanent circumstance. The one who would die to put an end to all sin. The one who would die to make all things right. She saw that thousands of years before Jesus was ever born, these rituals pointed to him. A fellow church member didn't know it yet, but this woman had recently come to faith in Christ. Her eyes were open to the truth that Jesus was the great high priest. That while Aaron had to offer sacrifices for himself, Jesus was the sacrifice. His sacrifice was perfect. He never dies. He could enter into the Holy of Holies, not once a year, but he actually resides in the holiest place at the right hand of the Father at all times. While the goats had to be sacrificed every year, Christ died once for all. And as a scapegoat was led out into the wilderness for the sins of the people, Christ was led outside Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people. And when the priest was finished there at the Day of Atonement, we read that he would lay his, his priestly clothes aside. He would lay aside his garments. When Christ finished his work, he laid aside his garments there in the tomb as he was raised from the dead. Jesus' death now gives us unlimited access to him as a royal priesthood of all believers. Friends, this is the glorious truth of substitutionary atonement. Christ became our substitute, taking upon himself all of our sins and the full wrath of God. Why would we ever want to reject the atonement of Jesus as that one pastor has the audacity to suggest? 
Why would we do away with the good news? Why would we throw away the only hope we have? Why, why, why? Now, that's immoral. That's embarrassing. That's ghastly theology. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Good Friday was the final and ultimate day of atonement. The last one ever again to be done. Now this news is worth talking about. This news is worth thinking about. This news is worth singing about. And so we loudly and proudly proclaim as a church, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For him, for me, who him to death pursued. God is holy, we are sinners, but Christ is the atoning sacrifice for those who repent and believe. O Redeemer Church of Dubai, with this truth melt our hearts today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you that we have not been left to wallow in our sins. That though we were dead, you have brought us back to life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus whose blood has washed away our sins. Would we as a church live as grateful people? Would we live as a people transformed by Christ? Would we live as a people centered on the gospel? Would we live as a people who have been transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.